All right, as I pointed out in the introduction to this uh, section before I read it, uh, there is an incredibly rich block of teaching that Paul has just gone through and that we've gone through over the past couple of months. It began in uh, chapter 1, verse 27, and it continued right up to 2.18, to the verse that was uh, right before this one. A block of teaching on how do you live the Christian life, all right? Great, it's good to be in Christ. What does that mean? How do you walk with the Lord? How do you follow after Jesus Christ? It was full of exhortations that we saw in there, incredible exhortations to steadfastness, to selflessness in the way we work, and to the hard work that we need to do in being in the Lord. And it's all rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the section that has preceded this. And we we come to this section today, and we might look at this section as Paul now turning his attention a little bit, and, and if you will, giving his readers, his hearers, as this would have been read aloud uh, in the church at Philippi, a little bit of a rest, a little bit of a break. Listen, I've just given you this intense time of teaching about the Christian life, about how you're to live it. Let me talk about some things that are perhaps a little bit more mundane. Uh, and I don't mean boring, mundane, of the world, things that are needs of the moment, particular circumstances which need to be explained. For example, Paul needs to explain why Epaphroditus is coming back with this letter uh, because they had sent Epaphroditus with the intention that Epaphroditus would stay there and minister to Paul. So it's nice to have word from Paul of why we now see Epaphroditus back at the church. And likewise, apparently there was some expectation perhaps that Timothy himself would have come. So Paul feels compelled to explain why in fact Timothy is not there right now and when Timothy will come to them. Once he's heard how things are going to go in this trial so that Timothy can then take word of how things are going to go with Paul. That's the intention here. And so he's got these explanations to provide. And there's something to that. There's something to just saying, Listen, I've, I've had this intention in mind to let you know how things are going uh, in my life and to communicate about various circumstances. And so there's something good to know about that and important and part of the purpose of the letter. But I think that in addition to that, and I think that's the very practical reason of, of why Paul is including this information, but in addition to that, if we ask, well, why include this information at this particular point? Why not at the very end of the letter, or why not back at the beginning of the letter? Why include it at this particular point? Then I think we can see a little bit more to be at work in this passage as well. And, and here's where I think it is. When you get instructions like the ones that we've seen Paul giving to the church over the past verses, over the past uh, several weeks now as we've looked at them. The instructions about you know, being blameless and looking out for the interests of others and striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You hear those things and I hope that you think, all right, those are good words. Those are encouraging words. Uh, th those are wonderful things to hear. But there's a part of us that says, what does that actually look like? What does it actually mean to live a life like that? Can can you make that a little bit more specific for us? Can you show us that in practice, in real time, what it looks like to live the kind of life that you've just been describing? And so I think here that what Paul is doing is he's not only providing us 
with a travel log, with an itinerary, and with the expectations uh, that attend the various people and where they're going to be in when. But he's doing more than that. He's putting flesh on the exact admonitions that he's just given. He's trying to provide them and us with models of what this worthy citizenship looks like. This is what it looks like. Here, here are people who are actually living this out. Paul's saying here that when I'm giving you this instruction, this admonition, you're not supposed to just, and, and here we can talk about the Philippians and we can apply this to us as well, you're not just supposed to hear that and go, well, man, in an ideal world, that would be great. Uh, or you're not supposed to hear it and think, that's great in theory, but man, in practice, life in the church is a lot messier and a lot more difficult uh, than that. Paul's not engaged in wishful thinking when he's given all of these exhortations that he's given. And in order to prove that, in order to demonstrate that, he says, here are two men, two faithful men, two genuine men who embody this. And as they embody the kind of things that I have just been speaking about, Paul speaking here, they are worthy of commendation, which Paul does clearly in this passage here, and they're worthy of emulation. You want to know how to do this stuff? Look at these two guys. These two guys will show you what it's like, and I'll point out to you what it looks like in their lives as they have sought to live this way. We all, the Philippians needed it, we all need these kinds of people in our lives. Men and women, we need these kind of people. People that we look up to. And let's be clear, I, I, I've got to say this just so we're not misunderstood. We're not talking about perfect people here. Timothy and Epaphroditus, we're not perfect people, and I'm talking about looking up to others right now in the Christian life. We're not talking about perfect people when we say that, so let's just put that off the table. But we need people who are further down the road than we are in life to be able to look at them and remind us, oh, okay, I, I see that now. That's what it means, and that's how you walk this Christian life year after year, and decade after decade. We need to have those kind of people in our lives. We're looking at these two particular men from a distance, right? This is now a couple thousand years ago for us looking at these two particular men. That wasn't the case for the Philippians. These were men that they knew. Uh, so th th there wasn't any like, hmm, who was, who was Epaphroditus and Timothy from history? These were friends, these were ministers, they were flesh and blood that they were uh, showing and looking back on. It's fine for us to look back on them. Uh, this is the living word of God, and so the Spirit of God who encouraged the Philippians with these words will encourage us with it as well. But we, like the Philippians, also need to look around us today, and, and I'm going to make this as concrete as possible, to look around in this room today and to find people like this. People who have lived the Christian life for decades more than we have lived it so that we can pattern ourselves, we can model, we can emulate the kind of things that we 
see them doing. Now, this passage that we've got today has two clear sections to it. The first part of it, uh, beginning at verse 19 on through verse 24, focuses in particular on Timothy, okay, why Timothy didn't go uh, along with this letter and when he will actually be there. And the second set of verses focus on Epaphroditus and why he actually is there in front of you right now and the reason that Paul sent him uh, to be with the Philippians once again. But for our purposes today, I'm, I'm going to put this together. I'm going to merge uh, these two men and look at them and their qualities uh, together because I think that will help us with our uh, purposes today. These men model the kind of things, unsurprisingly, if you're holding them up for commendation and for emulation, they, they model the things that we've seen in the letter to this point. And I want to bring it together with, with saying this. They model for us genuine affection, genuine concern, and genuine diligence in the way that they go about their lives and their ministry. So let's look at each one of those. First, at the genuine affection uh, that is seen in this passage and in these men. This passage is saturated. It is soaked through with affection. I washed my car yesterday, and you know you, you, that, that great thing when you take the rag, the soapy rag, out of the bucket, and it just drips off all of the soap and all of the water. That's the idea that is here. Everything is saturated with affection in the verses that I just read for us. It's no mean just kind of, this person's going to be at this place at this particular time. Uh, instead, it's full of this endearment that is there. And if you were an Israelite, you might say it's, it's like the oil dripping down Aaron's beard and onto his collar and down onto his robes as well, the kind of affection that we see in this particular passage. Consider all the words. They just kind of stack up here in uh, this passage. Paul says, uh, I, I want to be cheered by news of you. I don't just want news of you. I want to be cheered by that news. Paul and Timothy, like a father to a son, like a son to a father. Epaphroditus is my brother. Epaphroditus has been longing to see you because he was distressed. He was distressed that you heard that he was ill. And Paul says, had in fact my brother Epaphroditus died. Now remember, this is the joyful letter of the New Testament. Had Epaphroditus died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow at the death of this brother, at the death of your minister uh, to me. And there's eagerness and there's rejoicing and there's anxiousness and anxiety that's going on here. These are all words, all of these terms that are piled up one after the other in the passage that is before us, they are all terms that flow from the chief of the affections. They flow from love. And that's the reason why I put the uh, passage on the front of our bulletin today about the soul of Jonathan being knit to the soul of David because he loved him as his own soul. And that's what we see amongst these ministers and these churches as well, that kind of affection that is there. These are not business terms that are used in this particular section. It's not productivity and value statements and assets and resources. 
There's no professional detachment here. There's no statement like, don't get too close to your congregation. Don't get too close to people because you're going to get burned by doing that. Instead, keep a little bit of professional distance, a little bit of a buffer zone around you. These men and these churches are fully invested in one another. Their welfare is bound up together. How one is doing affects how the other is doing. And on the surface, that might sound terrific to have those kind of relationships, but we should recognize that it's kind of risky to do that. It's kind of risky to bind your welfare not only to what you're doing, but to how other people in, for example, this church are doing as well. Because then what happens is not only do you have to ride your own ups and downs through life, but, but you have to ride with others as well. So that if everything's going well with your soul, if everything's going well with you, but somebody else has just experienced significant loss, if you're bound together and you ride, you go into that trough with them. And that's the idea that's being communicated to us here. It, it, you know, to put it in a teaching lesson that Paul gives to us in Corinthians, he writes like this in 1 Corinthians 12, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, as we've seen, and we'll see, Paul's not averse uh, to using business language. Paul has a mission. He has a goal. He has work. And he expects others to work as well. He wants to see progress. He wants to see the advance of the gospel in the world and in people's lives. But if there's no affection, if there's no love at the beginning and the middle and the end of things, if Epaphroditus just kind of comes and gives the letter, says, here you go, here's the update, here's the exhortation from Paul, take this, or Paul, here's the gift from the Philippians. In other words, if the service that is being rendered does not have affection, if it doesn't have love attached to it, then what is it? Well, it's a noisy gong, right? It's a, it's a clanging cymbal. It's nothing. It's an abomination if it doesn't have affection and love attached to it as well. These are faithful men. I, I, I took the title of faithful men from the passage in 2 Timothy 2 that's on the front of your bulletin. These are faithful men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who model for us genuine affection. Now, Jesus does before them, right? John, uh, the, the Gospel of John, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Now, these men model that as well, and it begs from us the question, do I love like that? Do I have that kind of genuine affection and love for the people sitting right in this room? Their genuine affection leads to the next quality, which is obvious in them as well and completely inseparable from the genuine affection, and that is their genuine concern. 
Because they love, they care. They care how people are doing. They care about the welfare of others. Now, Paul had just taught on this. He had just said, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, passages we know well, do nothing from selfish, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. He's given the teaching. Now, Paul says, in, es in essence, here are, standing right in front of you, as in the case of Epaphroditus and Timothy, whom you know and will know, here are two men who do exactly that. Don't say to me, it can't be done, nobody can do that. Here are two men who are doing exactly this kind of thing. Of Timothy, Paul can write this, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. People who care for the welfare of others, genuinely, are people who indicate their membership in the family, in the household of God, because they share the interest of Jesus Christ. The welfare of others, your welfare, is the interest of Jesus Christ. No one cares more for your welfare than Jesus does. He cares how we are doing. But to emulate that, to strive after that in our own lives, Paul talks about how unique it is. Right? I have no one else like Timothy. And everybody else, whoever he's talking about, I don't know who else he's talking about there. Probably the people in Philippians who were preaching, the, uh, in, pardon me, in Rome, who were preaching the gospel from selfish motives. We read about them in chapter 1. That's probably who he's referring to here. But everybody else seeks their own interests. All of us in the room naturally seek our own interests. It requires no sermon to say that. What we're, what we're in need of is the exhortation and then the example of someone who will be genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Now think for a, for a moment. Do you have people in your life that are genuinely concerned for you? That are genuinely concerned for your welfare and how you are actually doing? Got them? Got them in mind? I'm going to ask the same question, but you're not allowed to answer with your family. Okay? We're excluding now your parents, your grandparents, your husband, wife, brother, sister. Family is excluded. Do you have people in your life who are genuinely concerned for your welfare? These weren't blood relatives here. Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, they weren't relatives. Maybe Epaphroditus had family in the church. That might make sense. Uh, Paul's not talking about blood relatives right now. Paul's talking about in the household of God, are there people who are genuinely concerned for your welfare? And if you can now, if you can now attach some names to that and say, you know what? By golly, I don't know why. I don't, I don't know why they're concerned about my welfare, but they are. And I believe that. Then you know how sweet that is. You know how sweet it is 
to have someone who cares about you. And that'll make more difference in your life than your parents done. To have someone who cares genuinely for you. Now let's spin the question around. Do you have people for whom you are genuinely concerned for their welfare? Your welfare being bound to their welfare, and that exclude family. I know you're genuinely concerned about your family, and you should be, that's good. For the sake of this discussion, exclude your family. Is there anyone in this church for whom you're genuinely concerned? Who you would be heartbroken if heartbreak took place in their lives? Or for whom you would delight if good things took place in their lives? For whom you are concerned? Well, we should. And listen, I'm sorry, periodically I say this. I, like Paul, I'm not an idealist here. There should be people in this church for whom we are concerned in that particular way. Should you expect to be concerned for every single person in this church in that way? No. No. That's absurdity. None of us can do that. But we have covenanted together. We have been bound together by the Lord in this time and this place to do exactly this. To have this kind of concern for one another. It is a tall order, right? And that's why Paul, when he first gave the exhortation to do this, had to say immediately, consider Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus Christ and the example that he gave on the cross. And that's why now, in this passage, he says, consider Timothy and Epaphroditus. Consider Timothy in particular and the way that he is genuinely concerned. But in the third place, let me say to us this, and this is where I began in talking about this, look around the room. Look around the room. Well, I, I know it's awkward to look around the room right, right at the moment. Are there people in this room who demonstrate this kind of genuine concern for other people? This is what Paul is doing. He's taking, I, imagine they're sitting right in here, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul is basically saying, listen, here's Epaphroditus. Here's Timothy. Take a look at these men and do what they do. Care like they care. So if there are people in this room right now, they're not Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're not sitting here right now, who you see that person demonstrates a genuine care, a genuine concern and interest in others, then, then, Perhaps ask them, how do you do that? Why do you do that? How do you go about that? How do you sustain that? Because, I mean, it's easy to do that for a short time. But how do you do that over the long haul when you really get to know somebody and when they've shunned you a couple of times? How do you do that? All right, maybe you're uh, embarrassed or maybe it's too awkward to ask them how they do it. But at least watch. At least watch and kind of just spy it out and do what they do. Do what they do and say what they say. And may the Spirit of God give us that kind of genuine concern. And that kind of takes us to the last point here. Not only do Timothy and Epaphroditus model genuine affection and genuine concern, they model genuine diligence. 
which is to say they do it, and they do it hard. They do hard work to bring these things into action. When you look for people to emulate, you should look for those who have walked the walk, who have done this, or who you know have done it in their lives. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. Now as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. This man is proven. He's gone through it. He's gone through it with me. I don't have any doubts about him, and you don't have any doubts about him because you know him. You've seen him. You've heard about him. You know him. He is proven to us. The genuine affection and the genuine concern didn't just happen. It didn't just spring up out of nowhere in Timothy and in Epaphroditus. And no disrespect, they didn't learn genuine concern and affection in seminary. You can't learn that there. A lot of good things you can learn there, but you can't learn that. Instead, that genuine concern, that genuine affection, and then that genuine diligence to do it, that was forged in the trenches of the battle for the advance of the gospel. That's how these men were drawn together. They worked together to see the gospel of Jesus Christ go forward. They strategized together. They preached together. They got beat together. They meant, went from place to place together. And that made genuine affection and genuine concern. Epaphroditus, he says, not only is he my brother, he's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. Did it seem odd, that combination with the passage in Samuel about this, about these mighty men killed 300? Did that seem an odd connection to this passage today, our Old Testament reading? He's a fellow soldier. In the trenches together, that's what the mighty men were to David. He's my fellow soldier. He's your messenger. He's minister. He risked his life. That's what Paul's saying. He's risked his life and almost lost it for the sake of the gospel. If the session of this church gave you something to do, at the near cost of your life for the sake of the gospel, would you do it? Epaphroditus would. Epaphroditus would say, here my Lord, send me. Now go into that space. And so when those three mighty men, when they hear David's, not command, as, as Ray said, when they hear his simple desire ah, for that water in the well of Bethany, then they go. They risk their lives. And, and, and they're willing to sacrifice their lives. <laughs> and David says, uh-uh, I'm not drinking this. I'm pouring it out as an offering a drink offering poured out upon your sacrifice. And I say it that way because Paul has just told them this. He just told the Philippians, work out your own salvation, and he told them, 
He told them, be ready and willing to sacrifice your lives for it. Nothing less. He used the sacrificial language to describe himself. He said, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I don't know if he had that passage from 2 Samuel in his mind when he did. But that's the image that's here. These men sacrifice, they risk their lives. And David pours it out. Paul says, even if I'm being poured out, my blood's being poured out on you. Even then. Now he says, you've got examples of that. Receive these men, honor such men. God does not want our leftovers, our spare time, our second best. He doesn't want our half-heartedness. He's not interested in your good intentions about things. He's not interested in any of those in our own spiritual lives. He's not interested in that in our affection and concern for others. He's not interested in that kind of work in the church. He's not interested in just your spare time. He wants genuine diligence. Genuine diligence let me be clear, within the lot that he has assigned to you. Within the space that he has assigned to you. Not all Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul. Within the space that he's given to you, that's what he wants. Your genuine diligence in the ministry. So, as we think of these two men... For those of you who were with us on Friday night, and perhaps for those of us who were able to hear the stories, though we actually weren't part of the stories, that's me, and that's some of the rest of you who were there, uh, that we, we, we weren't part of those initial stories of how the church got started. But you heard stories of living, in this case, men and women, and David was mentioned too, Anna. And Jerry was mentioned, and Lorraine. And Jerry was mentioned. Of, of living men and women who invested themselves in the advance of the gospel for this particular church, and they are the reason why we're sitting here, humanly speaking. Humanly speaking, they're the instruments that God used to bring us all to this particular place. That's what we do. We, we allow those people to be set up in front of ourselves to go, okay, good. I need to be exhorted in how to do this. That's all well and good. But then I need to hear. I need to hear and see the stories of people who have worked this out in time and space and various circumstances. And that's a little bit of a different way of putting it. It's a little bit of a different challenge than just teaching and exhortation when we think of the actual people. And you can let it run over you now. Let the challenge kind of now drip over you, asking yourself this question, ultimately of Christ and of the Lord, but do I love the way that those people loved? Do, do I have a concern for the church of Jesus Christ? for the welfare of other people, the way those people have or the way other people in this room have as well? 
Am I genuine in the diligence that I offer in service to the Lord and the advance of his church? What can I do? Do I love? Do I care? And what can I do for my king? Because you know what? Your king loved you. And the king was concerned about you. And the king laid down his life, his blood, as a sacrifice, poured out upon us, genuinely, all for Jesus. Indeed, Lord, we pray that our lives would be all for you in all the things that we do, in all the various parts of our lives, that they would be for you. Where we have been half-hearted and where we will struggle to be again, and where we have not shown zeal and diligence in speaking your name to the lost, supporting missionaries who've gone out, encouraging one another, caring for one another in specific and tangible ways. Lord, forgive us. And help us to look around in the scriptures for the exhortation and the examples, but also within your church, people that we know about and love to serve. We pray that you would help us to serve as well, genuinely. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.